This week, I'm joined by Ashley Woodward, who is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Dundee and is a founding member of the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy. In this episode, we discuss his book, Lyotard and the Inhuman Condition, alongside discussions on the postmodern, art, the heat death of the universe, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Metics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Ashley Woodward, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you. Uh, we're going to be discussing your book, uh, Lyotard and the Inhuman Condition, Reflections on Nihilism, Information and Art, um, which I was so fortunate to to come across as a, as we were just talking about because um, I personally feel that Jean-Francois Lyotard's work has been overshadowed specifically within his own sort of canon by the likes of people like Gilles Deleuze and Jacques Derrida and um, I mean you could even put like Heidegger in there but of the Continentals Lyotard is a name that's well known for his primarily for his uh, work on postmodernism, which unfortunately is often misrepresented. Um, but outside of that, you don't really see too many people talking about Leotard in any serious sense, which is very unfortunate. So I was very happy to see this book, and I was very happy that you uh, accepted the invitation. So before we jump in, I mean, just just tell us a little bit about yourself and how uh, how this work came about. Okay, so I'm from Australia, as you may or may not be able to tell from my accent, uh, and I'm currently working at the University of Dundee, which has a small tradition of Leotard scholarship. So uh, James Williams, who's uh, quite a prominent Leotard scholar, uh, used to work there, also Rachel Jones. So I'm very happy to be at Dundee. Um, my interest in Leotard grew out of my PhD thesis, which was on the notion of nihilism and postmodernity. So I really just stumbled across Leotard, as most people do, in relation to uh, the postmodern. And his work captured my imagination, uh, his, his vast writings beyond the notion of the postmodern. And it's a little difficult to say why, but certainly the variety of his work is something that really, really struck me. So you can pick up one Leotard text and it has formal logical symbols. You can pick up another text and it's like reading an avant-garde piece of French literature. So it really, um, it takes you to places that are quite unexpected. And I think I've continued reading and working on Leotard for so long because um, I could never pin it down. I, and I just felt like I kept on learning more and more from it, which is not the case with a lot of other philosophers I've read. So that's in general, um, I guess, my approach to Leotard. The book itself, Leotard and the Inhuman Condition, it's a collection of essays written in the 10 years or so after I completed my PhD. And the probably not directly obvious inspiration for the book uh, is books like Keith Ansel Pearson's Viroid Life, Reflections on Nature and the Transhuman Condition, um, which also are a kind of a loose collection of essays, which nevertheless uh, have overarching themes running through them. And it struck me at some point, I can't remember when, but it struck me that various essays I'd written on Leotard could form such a book. Um, and it just germinated from there, really. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward, really. I mean, before we jump in with, with the book and Leotard, of course, I have to ask you the hermetics question. Uh, you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And as, as I think this conversation will primarily revolve around Leotard, Leotard is already in the room and then three more you can pick. Okay, I decided to cheat a little bit here because you, you asked for thinkers. I thought I'd uh-huh. interpret that term in a quite liberal way. I hope that's okay. That's, that's exactly why um, I used that word <laughs> and not philosophers. Sure, sure. So um, I've chosen, in fact, uh, artists um, in, in various different areas that I love. So some of my heroes in different areas. So I would choose uh, in literature, David Foster Wallace, uh, in music, Stephen Wilson, and um, in film, David Lynch. And I don't know what any of these people would have to say to each other, but I think these these kinds of, you know, conversation, hypothetical conversations between famous thinkers, you know, they're never going to talk about what you want them to talk about anyway, are they? So why not just a bunch of people who, um, who I'd like to listen to speak? Well, I mean, firstly, I think I've, I think I've just made a new best friend because I, I've read the entirety of Foster Wallace's works. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big Foster Wallace fan and I'm sort of having a, it happens every few years. This, I tweeted about it yesterday, actually, just funny enough, having that, that gut feeling of maybe I should just reread Infinite Jest again, just to, you know, if it's, it suddenly yeah. seems relevant again, occasionally you get it, but the room, the room makes sense to me on an intuitive level. I think, you know, Foster Wallace writes that fantastic essay on Lynch um, about how surrealism is that extra, it's like surrealism. So it's that extra thing on mm. realism where it's like the one thing in every frame of Lynch, which is like, huh, that's strange. Which I guess, you know, with Leotard and this sense of the postmodern, it's the most like the uncanny aspect of reality, which doesn't quite sit right with everyone. Maybe that's where it would gravitate, do you think? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I've written an article on Leotard and Lynch, in fact, you know, in another work, um, so for me the connection's pretty clear because Lynch um, Lynch makes images that don't have an explicit meaning and that's the way he wants his films to work and this is very much in line with Leotard's aesthetics. So I think, I think that connection is a pretty straightforward one even if Lynch would maybe be rather bemused by anything Leotard may have to say. Mm-hmm. And what about Wilson? Do you, think, do you think he'd have much to add? Well, my first thought was... Was no, but then I remembered um, one podcast I do listen to quite religiously is um, his podcast, The Album Years, and um, he was talking about psychedelic music, which he described as enacting a kind of dream logic, mm-hmm. which I thought Leotard himself could have said this, uh, because the idea of dream logic as um, as enabling interesting innovations in art is very much Leotard's idea. So Wilson describes psychedelic music not being so much importantly about drug experiences, but simply about dream logic. And there were there were important musicians who didn't even take drugs who made psychedelic music, like Frank Zappa, for example. Mm. Um, you know, so yeah, so I think I think there would be maybe some unexpected or initially unexpected connections there. Mm. Okay. Is there anything you you personally would like them to address? No. <laughs> <laughs> let them let them let them have the run. No, of no. I think I think again. I mean, I think. Th- I can't remember if, if I'm right about this, but I think there was there's some story about a meeting between maybe Joyce and Beckett or some people. Who, they didn't talk about literature. You know, they talked about cricket or things. 
I think, yeah, I think you can't plan these things. Mm. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I do get the, that feeling with many of these rooms which are picked is that in day-to-day life, a lot of, you know, thinkers aren't aren't the uh, often, you know, like the archetypal heroes that we make them out to be. So they, you know, a lot of people put mm. Nietzsche in the room, for instance, like, well, that's all well and good, but he'd probably just have a headache or something, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, which it, which itself, you know, that <laughs> banal p- postmodern reality. Um, but I mean, to you know, just to 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 open the conversation up. As I'd said to you, I'd struggled for some time to get someone to, to come on to talk about Lyotard, and I think it's because he's been overshadowed. And I, I will just open up with that question: Why? Why do you think? You know, despite the fact that he, it, it's the strange thing. I think it's not like he's unknown. So he's not unknown. He's well known by, you know, if, if you're reading Deleuze, you're well aware of, if you're reading Deleuze, Foucault, these people, you're well aware of Lyotard. And yet his work's still overshadowed in some sense. Do you have, do you, I mean, if you agree, why, why do you think this is? I absolutely agree. And I think he does, um, he does hold a strange position because he certainly can't argue that he's a marginalized thinker. I mean, he's a, he's a dead white male who's, uh, who's undoubtedly achieved canonical status in the Western philosophical tradition. At the same time, his work remains largely unknown. And if it is known, he's known for the postmodern condition, which I've heard, I, I haven't been able to see any like track original reference, but I've heard that at one point he was the most, well, this work was the most referenced in the humanities at some point in the 80s. Uh, but my cynical suspicion is that it was referenced without having been read, and people just quote the three words "incredulity toward metanarratives," which is what the postmodern supposedly means. Mm. And then they they just tend to make up whatever the, off the top of their heads, whatever they think a metanarrative means, without reading Leotard. So they think it means any kind of coherent claim to knowledge or something like this, you know, which is a bit bizarre. Um, why has he been overshadowed? I suspect it's got something to do with the strange character of his reception. So uh, Lieta was uh, visiting American universities in California in particular since the early, um, early 70s, but a lot of his work wasn't translated really until, apart from a few people here and there, until the postmodern condition. And that's kind of what made him famous. Um, and he was largely aligned, I guess, with the kind of theory that was going on in the States at the time and with people like Derrida in particular, more so than Deleuze at the time. And his work, once you scratch the surface, his work is really opposing the linguistic turn in philosophy. So that, that could be a reason why it was a bit puzzling because on the surface, I mean, the differ on the postmodern condition, it engages very much in the linguistic turn. So you'd think maybe there'd be some commonalities uh, with Derrida. But it's in a way, it's a surface appearance. And insofar as it is engaging with philosophy of language, it's analytic philosophy of language, which I suspect a lot of people in literature departments uh, didn't really want to have to do all of the work of trying to understand. Um, and analytic philosophers didn't read him either. So I don't know. It's a little bit odd. I mean, he became famous for that little book, Postmodern Condition. A lot of his work was translated. And then there's the other issue that it's just so diverse. As I mentioned earlier, as a merit and something that attracted me to his work, it also makes it very difficult to sum up Leotard or to pin him down, really, and to um, 
to explain why leotard might be important. Now, having said that, I think the same is probably true of people like, like Derrida or Deleuze or even figures like Wittgenstein. Why are they important or, or Heidegger? It's very difficult to get a simple answer um, because their work is so diverse. It's interpreted by so many people. So there may be well, there may well be a lot of other thinkers who are who are actually in Leotard's position of being very well known on the surface. But um, but I think where Leotard differs from people like Derrida and Deleuze is there's a the amount of secondary literature and the amount of time and effort that people think is worth investing in their work. So even with Leotard, there's a lot of secondary literature by people who have read maybe a book or a few articles. There's very little secondary literature by people such as myself who've tried to read pretty much everything. Whereas with Deleuze or Derrida, they take the time and effort to do that. Um, I'm not sure I understand why. Perhaps I, I think he's worth it. Mm. Perhaps it's down to what 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 you said earlier about the um, you know the difference in styles of his work. You know, moving from mm. sort of classical philosophical essay or text, you know, to something like libidinal and economy, which is at times extremely po- poetic, uh, extremely sort of radical, um, but political at the same time. So you don't always know where you're standing, right? Absolutely. Mm. Mm. There's, there's also possibly this issue that Leotard has that maybe some other thinkers don't have to criticise his own earlier work. So he's, he writes prefaces to his early, like, re-editions of his book explaining why they're wrong. <laughs> so, And early Leotard commentators like Jeffrey Bennington, Bill Readings and so on took his word for it, whereas later commentators like James Williams or myself uh don't you know i mean so i think you can dip into any of leotard's work and take it on its own merits without having to pay too much attention to his later recounting and so on mm. i mean at least he at least he did that as opposed to sort of you know saying right don't publish these ever again burn everything like many philosophers do <laughs> exactly it's exactly it's a strange attitude i'm just going to republish this book which i think is completely wrong you know, <laughs> uh, I'm, but I'm, I'm glad that he did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, I will. You know, I will have to ask you that probably the question. Maybe you get asked it a lot. The the, the big Leotard question because it's funny that mm. you say that. You know, this this definition of postmodern, which is has become so popular that it's bandied around even in the mainstream media and is sort of accepted as something that everyone just knows. And of course, the definition that I was given when I was um, also in 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 art school, you know, was. The one that you've given, which is postmodernism, is the the the, de- the deconstruction of overarching values. You know, there's no longer any hierarchical systems, hierarchical systems of value, or any you know, uh, should we say like monotheistic values? So they've all been deconstructed, and we we all know this. And this is given as Leotard's, you know, um, his definition of postmodernism. Is this a misrepresentation of it? Well, I've got a I've got a pretty long answer to this question <laughs> okay. um, about postmodernism, if that's okay. That's oh, fine. Um, Let's clear it up once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> well, maybe I can begin with the comment that um, Leiter, uh suggested in 1985 in an interview when he was asked directly what what does the postmodern mean. Um, he said, "Well, this is a question I'm currently working on, but I suspect we'll." 
tire of talking about it before we reach an answer. And I think that's what happened, you know. Um, but to say a little more, uh, I think the great difficulty is in assuming that the term postmodern has a single homogeneous meaning. And it just doesn't. It developed in different fields at different times uh, with different meanings. And subsequently, there's been an attempt to try to make all of these different meanings mean the same thing. And I think this breeds confusion more than anything. Um, so particularly with Lieta, one can note is that, uh, so one of the popular meanings of the term, as you've noted, um, is is in art. And here we have already as a number of meanings. So I think the essay in the um, Cambridge Companion to Postmodernism on art specifies about six different meanings of what the term postmodern can mean just in art. Okay. Uh, but there's one meaning it has, which is its association with the so-called trans-avant-gardism or neo-expressionism, uh, which was the return of figuration in painting in the early 1980s, so associated with figures like uh, Georg Baselitz and Julian Schnabel and so on. Now, this is pretty much the only movement in art that Lyotard directly criticised, right? Um, so... Not only does Lyotard not mean what this means, uh, he was directly <laughs> against it. Right? So what was he against? Basically, he was against the idea which is popularly associated with postmodernism of the end of innovation and the pastiche of past styles. So this is an important idea in architectural postmodernism with figures like Charles Jenks, Robert Venturi, and so on. Um, and it's often bandied about in, well, cultural theories of postmodernism with uh, Friedrich Jamison, for example, the notion of pastiche is central. And Lyotard was very critical of this idea because he thought that it was really just a pandering to, uh, to the capitalist market. So he thought that these artists, um, the trans-avant-gardist artists, were really just producing things which gave up on experimentation, which gave up on trying to produce something really new and just combined in a single piece various styles which were recognisable and popular already. So they provided something which was very marketable. And uh, perhaps incidentally, this coincided with the real explosion of what we now think of as the art market. So there was this... Um, uh, this kind of criticism Lyotard had towards art, which he perceived to be over-commodified, you know, to simply be commercialised. And he identified with that, that with one trend, which is often called postmodernism, um, and especially this notion of pastiche. Um, so that's one major issue. Um, and this is one way we can definitely get Lyotard wrong about the postmodern. Another one I can mention, sorry, I warned you this would be a long answer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. No, it's fine. It's, a, one, it's the big question. <laughs> yeah. Another one I can mention is um, a difference in the way that the term modernism is used in the French tradition and in the Anglo-American tradition. So when Anglo-Americans think of modernism, they tend to immediately think of Clement Greenberg and this notion of the purity of the medium. Um, but actually, a friend of mine is a French art historian who works on Greenberg, and she told me that his work really wasn't very well known in France for a long time. 
And when Lyotard writes about modernism, he often uses the term synonymously with romanticism in the way that uh, Baudelaire does, for example. So when he talks about postmodernism, he's talking about post-romanticism. So art since, say, you know, the early to mid-19th century, rather than specifically the art of the late, you know, the later 20th century. Now, in true Lyotard style, he's not consistent about this. Sometimes he does use, you know, talk about modernism to mean, particularly with music, you know, 20th century music. Um, so he's not consistent. Um, but in his most programmatic or clear essays where he's talking about postmodernism, it's always modernist, modernism or romanticism as opposed to something that would be postmodern. So I think that's where people make a, a, an easy mistake. And then there are readings which suggest Lyotard's postmodernism is actually just modernism anyway. Um, Diamond Costello has a, an article on Lyotard's modernism suggesting this. And I think this gets things wrong because it just doesn't, it misidentifies. I mean, it's un, an understandable mistake, but it misidentifies the tradition that he was working in and the use of these terms um, in that tradition. And in a way, maybe it's a cultural, it's a cultural difference. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, the main thing I would think is just that the term postmodern, oh no, actually, sorry, there, there's one more thing to say, which is that uh, Lieta himself pointed out that he rarely used the term postmodernism. Mm. Um, he used the term postmodern and the term postmodernity. And for him, it wasn't an ism. So it wasn't a theory and it wasn't something that he could have written a manifesto for. It's a critical and diagnostic term, which tries to tell us something about the contemporary situation, or at least his contemporary situation, in both its negative and positive aspects. So there's this tendency to say Lyotard was a kind of apologist for postmodernism or something like this, but it's a critical term. It's a, you know, he's mourning the end of meta-narratives at the same time as exploiting the positive possibilities that this situation offers. It's a, it's a complex notion. Mm -hmm. uh, out of interest, I mean, one, one, sort of symptom of this which was constantly emphasized when you know one was told what postmodernism or post the postmodern is was that it sort of leaves the human somewhat bereft you know when we've been completely decentered um it's almost as if you know everything has become imminent and and equal to one another in value and so the the human itself is is sort of completely left and do you see this as a a, a clear symptom of that, or would I be wrong there? No, I think that's right. And I think there is, despite all my um, caveats about, you know, different meanings in different areas, at the same time, there are some overlaps, you know, and um, certainly a crisis of value in some sense is probably one meaning across the different notions of postmodernism, of course, the problem then is that's that's a meaning of modernism as well, you know. So, uh, but I, I certainly agree with the comment that this notion of a crisis of values, maybe an intensified crisis of values, um, and yeah, certainly this is the case for Lyotard in his political and historical analysis of the end of meta narratives. With the end of meta narratives, um, we lose a we lose a kind of modern horizon of value in his understanding of the modern as 
organizing human projects according to um, a historical vision of progress. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, and this is something that sort of um, really struck me in your book. I mean, in regard with regards, actually, I mean, it's it's in I would say it's in complete relation to this idea of like this this universal notion of, especially in the West, of progress. Right, everything's sort of going fine. Is you 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 bring in, and I think it's obviously from uh, Ray Ray. Uh, I can't remember how to pronounce his last uh, name. Brassier. Brassier. Uh, you know, the heat death of the universe is almost like the absolute um, nullification of this value of well, which in itself is, uh, dare I say, it, I'm already treading into murky water, but a postmodern idea, right? Well, you have this universal idea of progress, which is in itself always in relation to the heat death of the universe, which is this absolute, well, whatever we do, there's always this nihilistic unavoidable end to all things so you know for what purpose are all these values in 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 the end and i mean that for you in your essay sort of completely not undermines but completely overhauls what it means to be to be a human yeah i think that's right um it dramatizes certain questions you know thinking about it in such extreme terms so leotard rather well, yeah, rather dramatically, I guess, performatively and humorously uh, told this story about the death of the sun in, in um, roughly five billion years' time, and he suggested that it, this is the most pressing problem facing us today, by which he meant, in a sense, we're acting as though it is. You know, we're, we're pursuing progress and development, or as he preferred to call it, development, techno-scientific development. Um, so... With, you know, so fast today, it's as though we're worried about the death of the sun happening tomorrow and we quick as quickly as possible need to build um, artificial bodies that are going to be able to survive in the, the rest of the solar system and the, the cosmos. Uh, Gracier really pushes that to the extreme by, by saying, well, it's not just the death of the sun we need to worry about. Maybe we will find technological means for surviving this in five billion years. What about the heat death of the universe? Um, you know, which is something like a trillion, trillion, trillion years from now. Um, we're probably not going to be able to survive that, although some theorists uh, hold out hope. But what it does, it, it the idea is that it levels human beings. Um, it's a kind of, as you suggested, it's a kind of ultimate point after which nothing we do now will seem to have any significance. So it's that old existentialist kind of argument well, nothing will matter in a million years, so what does it matter, you know, what I do today, but taken to the nth degree. And for Leotard and Brassier, the point of these thought experiments is to to make us realise that human beings don't have a special place in the universe, that we are, in a way, just matter, that this transcendent aspect we think of as belonging to minds or souls, it's ultimately still subject to this kind of physical destruction, just like any other matter in the universe. So it's a kind of blow to the narcissism of of human beings, if you will. You, so what what of value after that? I mean, that's the big question, right? I mean, where do you, where do where do you go after the heat death of the universe? Exactly, that's the big question. And Brasse, of course, loves this idea because he hates value, or <laughs> hates value in in most human terms, if you like. Um, the only value he'll, he'll acknowledge is, is knowledge. Um, so for Brassier, it's all good that it's nihilism because he wants to embrace nihilism. Uh, 
For Lyotard, it's a bit different. Lyotard wants to dramatize the question in order to refocus attention on what might be lost in basically the project of artificial intelligence. Because one of the essays in which he raises this issue is called Can Thought Go On Without a Body? And he engages with uh, Hubert Dreyfus's Heideggerian arguments about the limits of artificial intelligence, for example, and offers some reflections on this. So his concern is really, um, you know, he's addressing broad questions like what is the mind? Can the mind really be modelled by a computer and instantiated in purely physical terms? And he doesn't say no, but he suggests that the current paradigm of artificial intelligence won't be able to capture what it is that's important about human beings, or he fears that it won't, so that maybe something will survive the death of the sun, but it won't be anything which contains what we currently recognise as valuable, which for him, in short, is um, the possibilities of thought, of creativity, of philosophy, um, and these kinds of processes, which for him, he doesn't think that modeling the human mind on a computer really do justice to. And this is certainly not unique to Lyotard. This is a very, very widespread argument in artificial intelligence um, and still today. And it's maybe more important than ever today as we advance uh, even more in, in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, of course, the question, what a value? Well, <laughs> if only I knew. <laughs> mm, okay. I mean, does Lyotard give us any clear sort of combative measures to somehow, you know, you, you've, we've got, it's all, it's almost, you know, I mean, actually a, bring in a Foster Wallace quote, a tyranny to interject the question without attending to the answer, right? It's like, there's going to be a heat death of the universe. So, okay. So meaning, meaning and value is sort of defunct, but then of course there's that remaining question. Okay. But we're still here. So what does, does Lyotard offer us anything? As I understand it, there is a sort of almost Nietzschean creative nihilism, uh, atmosphere in Lyotard's work? Yeah, in the early work, yes, there's a, um, you know, one of the many changes he undergoes is he does turn against Nietzsche, um, but um, with respect to what's valuable, he thinks there is something which resists, and he gives it different names throughout his work. So... In the early work, yes, he, he, he has a kind of mixed reading of Nietzsche and Freud um, in his work on libidinal economy. In his later works, uh, he still references Freud. Probably Freud's his most important reference. But he references um, what I'm tempted to call in very accessible terms the wonder of childhood. And in more technical terms, it's something like the persistence of the unconscious and uh, dream logic, which I mentioned earlier. So it's those aspects of the mind which um, uh, which remain in the adult mind, but they're the things which were around in early infancy. And there's something of this in Leotard which he thinks is the source of creativity, 
the source of original thinking and the source of value in life in general. Um, but again, to put it in more prosaic terms, it's, it's a matter of uh, remembering what the world was like before we knew how to categorize things. So there's that sense of newness, which is always for Leotard accessible. Um, and even as we get old, he suggests, there's ways we become better at accessing um, this sense of newness, this sense of wonder, um, which is, you know, which is retained, even if it's deeply unconscious and repressed, which is retained from childhood. So he uses various technical terms such as infantia, um, the thing, which is kind of Freudian, Lacanian term to refer to this, this kind of internalized, unconscious encounter with uh, the, the mystery of the external world. Um, he thinks there is something which is, in a sense, um, psychologically present in human beings, um, which is a source of value. And this is what he thinks, this is what he's concerned, will be reduced out if we start simply making artificial intelligence that doesn't have an unconscious, that never had a childhood, that is not truly capable of uh, original thought and he even says not capable of suffering or not able to understand sexual difference. Um, so these kinds of aspects of the human, which are more mysterious, which are much harder to quantify and to model. Um, so throughout his work, he's always searching for these rather elusive terms of resistance to nihilism. And he does identify these. He references practices which he thinks um, exemplify them and promote them, mostly associated with creative actions like, like art and, um, and writing, but also at the heart of scientific invention, he thinks, these kinds of processes. So, yes, he does identify them, but he doesn't give us, um, you know, a list of instructions mm. as to how to how to reproduce them because that would be self-defeating because mm. it, it needs to be something that is every time um, approached anew or, it, or it's, you know, it is not itself the new. So it's almost as if one is um, entering a realm of decategorization where mean, even the meaning of meaning and the meaning of nihilism simply aren't. So you're you're in a completely, um, I don't know, free 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 floating, infantile state. Yeah, and I think uh, free floating is an opposite term because um, you know it's a term that's used in psychoanalysis as the ideal state of mind for the analyst trying to pick up clues from the from the patient, the analyzant, and Leotard refers to this as a kind of ideal state of mind for this, this, this kind of creativity that he's, um, that he's trying to access as well. A certain openness. So it's, um, so it's opposed by Leotard to this ideal of certainty, rationality and control, which seems to dominate, well, you know, a lot of mainstream philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. So, it's not really a question of him accepting nihilism because doing so would be, you know, that would be from that certain human perspective in a way, but it's in a, he's almost split it into two completely distinct ways of, well, it's a difficulty because once again, I was going to say way of thinking about it. As soon as you're entering into a way of thinking about nihilism, you're opening the door once again to the possibility of it. 
Mm. Yeah, well, nihilism, it's not really something that's uh, that's ever well defined in Leotard. He uses it as a kind of operative term, which changes a bit in different contexts. Um, he read Nietzsche, obviously, and also uh, popular thinkers like Camus when he was young. So he picked up these terms from, uh, from the currents of the time. Um, but he tends to apply it in different uh, different ways in different contexts, as he does really most of his terms and ideas, in fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, one one thing that you, you know, as it's reflections on nihilism, information and art, we've spent a lot of time on nihilism, we've touched on art, but this idea of a philosopher of information is an extremely interesting one because it's a peculiar title to hold. Um, and the the term information itself is a tricky one. Um, so, what does Lyotard mean by information, and how how you know what does it also mean to be a philosopher of information in that sense? Hmm. Yeah, good questions. Again, I don't think Lyotard has a strict definition, but there's an important <laughs> sense in which um, he understands information in a critical sense as a kind of common measure. Um, so one of Leotard's key ideas, to my mind, is incommensurability or a lack of common measure. So if we think about um, his generation of French philosophers, you know, what are often called the post-structuralists, as philosophers of difference, uh, they all seem to have their, their notions of difference. So they all think about difference, but a little differently, you know, if, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Foucault thinks about the difference as the abnormal or something like this. Derrida has his um, difference. Um, Leotard, I think, maybe the leading meaning of difference in his work is a kind of in- incommensurability, which means that when things when things are different, it means they don't have a single common measure which would would give the value of both of those things. So there's no third reference point which can entirely do justice to the two things which are different. And he thinks that uh, things which try to impose common measures on everything are problematic. And one of these things is money, uh, and another of these things is information, he thinks. Um, and um, this makes sense. Um, he's he's responding critically to cybernetics, which was uh, very popular in France from pretty much the time it was coined by Norbert Wiener, the American uh, mathematician and philosopher, in the late 1940s. So Lyotard actually says he he read these works of Wiener's when they first came out, uh, didn't really write on them very much for a while, but he started writing on these things more in, um, well, really, I guess, around the late 70s when he was asked to write the postmodern condition and reflect on the conditions of knowledge in contemporary society. So he started to think of information as this kind of common measure which has a similar function to money, you know, a similar function as money has in capitalist society in giving a common measure to everything and being able to give a value to everything. But information works in the realm of uh, of meaning, so in language and in technological science as well. 
So it's a way of thinking a commonality between between different things. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why there was so much excitement about the mathematical theory of information developed by Claude Shannon in uh, the late 40s, because it allowed innovations in a lot of different disciplines, because it allowed people to think about things in different ways. So there was this idea of information, which... um, which is a kind of process which is abstracted from the uh, the things which process it. So information is a kind of abstraction in the way that money is as well. Um, and information can be identified in very different kinds of physical systems which instantiate the same information. So it's an interesting kind of abstraction which has, you know, arguably it has value because it allows us to see commonalities where they previously weren't able to be seen. But Lietar's concern is that through an overemphasis on this kind of uh, informational modelling, differences are reduced away so that you just get a very homogenised perspective which uh, reduces everything to one single perspective. So in that sense, he's very critical of the idea of information acting as a common measure. Well, I have I have a, a few questions there. I mean, they're and they're all quite big. But just to jump right back, I mean, to this idea of the post-structuralists. One thing, perhaps, I should have asked at the start: Do you agree with these these figures being tethered together in this way? Do you think it's actually appropriate? Of course, it's it's probably often done for ease of saying, right? We're talking about the post-structuralists, but do you actually think there's enough enough philosophical commonality for us to be able to say? You know, Lyotard, Deleuze, Derrida, these are the post-structuralists. Yes, I do. I do. Um, I do because they all knew each other. They referred to each other's works. Um, More so than, for example, existentialists who often lived in different times and places. And, you know, I think other common terms like existentialism, it's a much looser grouping. But the post-structuralists, I think that's... um, I think that's okay, but at the same time, that's no excuse for just getting things wrong because of being too lazy to read their works, right? So, so there are important ways that Lyotard disagrees with um, with thinkers that he calls the philosophers of difference, uh, talking about people like Deleuze and Derrida and Baudrillard and so on. Um, so, so certainly Lyotard will say, uh, for example, a book like his book The Different, he said. You know, it was consciously an attempt to uh, to write a work that would be situated somewhere between Derrida's difference and repetition and, and sorry, Derrida's writing and difference and Deleuze's difference and repetition. So he's doing his own book, which he, which he understands to be very close to those other post-structuralist works. So, yes, there are lots of commonalities, but I think uh, we need to be careful in noticing that there are distinct differences and there are debates between these different thinkers. So, for example, um, uh, the, you know, there was a famous Nietzsche conference in, in 1972, um, uh, Cerisi LaSalle, where there were like supposedly two camps. There were the Derridians and there were the Deleuzeans and Lietar was on the, the Deleuzean side. Um, and so, you know, these philosophers that we group together now at some points, they were they were very much divided in terms. Of, I mean, the, the issue for them was really how how much do you want to emphasize language? Um, 
so yes, so I, I, agree, I agree it's a useful grouping, but um, we need to recognize there are differences between them as well. Mm, okay, okay. What, I mean, what do you think about that? Um, hmm. I think I would I would be in a complete agreement with what you said is that it's um, an extremely, it's a useful term and a practical term. But as you said, it, it can often excuse people from, for instance, you know, saying they're all post-structuralist is fine, but there are very clear and nuanced differences between, you know, Deleuze and Lyotard. You can't just sort of bandy their work together and use it in exactly the same sentence as as if it's all supportive of each other at all times. Um, and it could be, a, you know, an excuse to, as you say, not go do the reading, um, mm. which could also be excused because, you know, I mean, reading difference and repetition isn't exactly the funnest of tasks at times. <laughs> um <laughs> But you know, on this on this idea of difference, actually, I mean, you mentioned this idea of difference for Lyotard that it, there there isn't this third, and perhaps I'm stretching this a little too far. But would that, for me, that says that Lyotard would have immediate problems with with the the infamous Hegelian synthesis, that there is there is no there's only would that propose that there's only consistent theses? Um, well, that's right. I mean, Lyotard was. Uh in many respects oppositional to Hegel precisely because of that reason, because of this tendency to see synthesis as a kind of um, negation of differences. Now, this is this is controversial, uh, controversial reading, you know, especially in recent years after people like Zizek, there's much more attention these days to, to reading Hegel differently to this kind of French reception. Um, uh, and I think it's also interesting, one of Lietzow's most important engagements with Hegel is through the, uh, the chapter on sense certainty in the phenomenology of perception, where he kind of agrees with Hegel but disagrees with his conclusions. Um, I won't go into the details, but it's maybe a bit off topic of what we're discussing, but I think uh, I think, yes, it's correct to see Hegel as mostly uh, an enemy for Lyotard. At the same time, uh, I mean, I've, I've read people say, well, Lyotard thinks we shouldn't read thinkers like Hegel and Marx anymore. And there's absolutely no justification for saying something like that. I mean, Lyotard would think these are these are thinkers we, we're never done reading, you know, um, even if the, we need to disagree with some things. You know, Lyotard was not one to say, we've decisively moved on in history, we stop reading these thinkers now. I mean, that's, that would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, on that same, on that same, in that same sentence, sorry, um, of this, these tools or sort of ideal tools which we use to allow us to value everything or categorize everything, and of course, money is the the clearest example. Was anything to be done with money for Lyotard, or was that now simply a um, sort of ideological constant, which which you know that's what we have to deal with? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I can answer the term in. I can answer the question in terms of capitalism, maybe mm -hmm. better than money, precisely. If that's if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, thinking about Lyotard's trajectory, um, 
you know, he he began something we haven't uh, raised yet, I guess, is he began his career as a kind of Marxist militant, uh, which he pursued for about 10 years um, in a couple of groups. And um, he always emphasized later in life that it was it was a passion for him. There was something that he was practically engaged in. He wasn't just a theoretical Marxist. Um, so at, at a certain point, he lost his faith, you know, and he decided, the, the key issue is that he thought that it was wrong to sum up humanity in terms of um, a single subject of history, which can be theorised in terms of the proletariat or something like this. So uh, Leitman never lost his critical attitude towards capitalism. So even for some years after he lost his faith in relatively traditional forms of Marxism and Marxist hope, he was still writing uh, about the abolition of capitalism up until around 1973. And then I don't know what happened exactly, but he decided that this was a fantasy, you know, to think that the capitalist system, that there was simply an alternative to the capitalist system. Part of his reasoning here is that the very idea of an alternative to the capitalist system uh, helps support the capitalist system uh, because anything that's posited as being against the system or outside the system makes a very good product. Um, so he, he started to see anti-capitalist theory as itself part of the whole um, mechanism of capitalism. It was just supporting this system. My favourite example of this kind of logic is um, a Christmas present that an old friend gave me once, which was uh, Che Guevara lip balm. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so these kind of anti-capitalist desires that can be so easily and trivially uh, commodified. Um, so Leotard started to think that there was no alternative outside the capitalist system. So he gave up his hope of, you know, uh, destroying the system in whatever sense or that there would be something afterwards that would be not open to exploitation. And he became very pessimistic in that sense. Uh, and the pessimism just deepens, I think, over his lifetime. So by the 1990s, you're reading, uh, well, if you read Leotard, there are interviews where he's, he's saying there's no alternative to capitalism, um, especially in terms of uh, immediate financial crises. Uh, but at the same time, he said there's something which resists the very worst that the capitalist system threatens, and this is something he never did give up on. So, again, this is the idea of um, the infancy or that source of creativity. Um, and he always saw the capitalist system, or not always, after his, after his loss of faith in traditional Marxism, he often perceived the capitalist system as a very ambiguous system because it has both this tendency to subject everything to a common measure and, you know, which is money, and in that sense to, uh, to reduce the value of things by subjecting them to a common measure which enables their exchange value. But the very system in which that operates also tends to confer value on things and to create value and to bring new things into circulation within the system. So one of the things that he objected to most about uh, the Marxist theory of his time was he thought there was a kind of um, 
disingenuous belief that there's no enjoyment in capitalism. You know, people were writing about capitalism as though it was just a miserable downer for everyone, you know, which I think we know isn't the case, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even the, the worst kinds of things that you might want to criticise in your most grumpy anti-capitalist moments, like, um, I don't know, pop music or crappy television or whatever, I mean, they work because they're enjoyable. So Leotard wanted to acknowledge this and understand the complexities of this system which simultaneously seems to destroy value in life and create value in life. But having said all of that, he uh, he still thought it was an unjust system, despite the fact that it contains value and enjoyment. He nevertheless uh, continued to describe capitalism as a kind of soft totalitarianism. Mm. He thought that it, um, it, it was an exclusionary system. It kept people poor, you know. So I'm I'm interested there. I mean, in this, because what you've described in terms of this, you know, everything gets subsumed back into capitalism, even if it's anti-capitalist, sounds a lot like you know the anti-production of Deleuze and Guattari. Um, that anti-production becomes production. Is there any key differences between you know the readings of capitalism for Lyotard and Deleuze and Guattari? Yeah, I guess I wish I could answer that question better than I could. Uh, it's been a little while since I looked at. Anti-Oedipus, for example. Um, yeah, so I don't have a I don't have as precise an answer to that question as I would like, but I would note that Lyotard was profoundly influenced by Antiedipus. Uh, so when it was published, uh, you know, he and Deleuze were already close. They were colleagues working at the University of Vincennes together. Uh, Lyotard was following his work closely. Um, and he wrote libidinal economy as a kind of direct response, but more a kind of continuation of what he understood as the project of anti-Oedipus. So in that sense, I think they're quite close. There are there are points of criticism of each. Um, but I think actually Lita's Lita's work in that period remains close to Deleuze, and Lyotard in his later period moved further away, whereas I don't think Deleuze did so much. So Lyotard decides that his whole project of libidinal economy and that that understanding of um, uh, the way to approach capitalism from a libidinal perspective, uh, schizoanalytic perspective, he starts to see that as itself an alternative to capitalism that he saw as problematic in ways that I've just talked about. So there was this moment at the um, Schizo Cultures Conference in 1975 in America. Uh, the Lyotard was invited to, and Deleuze and Gautari were invited to, and Foucault was there. Um, and Lyotard gave a paper, which, as far as I'm aware, was his first paper where he really does do an about face. And he says basically, well, this kind of schizo theory is part of the mechanism of capitalism, which uh, I don't think went down very well. <laughs> mm. Okay, okay, he's always on the fringe, it seems. Um, the one, so the one concept we haven't really touched on, and I, I mean, 
I would probably just ask you this question, you know, <laughs> right now, is does does capital does capitalism in a way produce what Lyotard would consider the inhuman to be, or am I off the mark there? Uh, no, that's right. But there are there are two meanings to the inhuman, or it's there are at least two meanings. So it's fundamentally ambiguous. There's one sense of the inhuman which is a kind of dehumanization, which yes is produced by the worst aspects of capitalism and of technological science and what Lietar came to call simply the system with a capital S, which is something like the global uh, system of this combination of a um, of a certain logic of common measure and performance and efficiency, which combines uh, capitalism and technological science in this um what Leotas saw from a kind of metaphysical perspective as, as simply the system. So insofar as the contemporary world system, if you like, um, has dehumanising effects, then Leotas used the term inhuman as another term for dehumanisation. Yes. Uh, but it also has um, another meaning, which is in a sense the opposite, which is the possibility of resistance to dehumanisation. And again, this is uh, associated with uh, what it is in us which Lyotard thinks precedes the human. Um, so it's associated with this kind of childhood wonder or infancy. And to explain that a little more, Lyotard says in the preface to his book, uh, his collection of essays simply called The Inhuman, he says that the reason that uh, humanism, I suppose, as a kind of philosophy of, of value, as you know, the human as the kind of um, uh, source and model of meaning. The problem with this is that we're not born human. Uh, it takes time and effort and violence to turn us into human beings. You know, this is education. This is the whole process which Freud described of uh, repression. Um, the uh, the emergence of the conscious mind uh, from the unconscious and repression of desires and so on. So in a way, Leotard's inhuman refers to all of these things that are repressed and which remain within us. So those inhuman dimensions for Leotard are the source of value because, again, they're the source of creativity, of the possibility of uh, breaking through the conventions that we've been educated with, and uh, producing something new and different. So these sources of resistance to the homogenization that uh, the system produces, Leotard thinks are all, he also calls them the inhuman. Um, and there's a kind of ambiguity, you know, Leotard loves these ambiguities, but there's an ambiguity there in this notion of the inhuman insofar as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, yes, uh, a big effect of this system in contemporary neoliberal uh, capitalist um, systems of political organisation, a big effect is to produce dehumanisation. But at the same time, Lyotard says it, it also um, increases our capacities. You know, like part of the system is to make us into more efficient producers and part of what that can do is to strengthen our capacities to produce the inhuman in a good sense. 
So it's very it's a very du- duplicitous kind of system that we're caught in, according to Leotard. It both develops our capacities and our powers, and it tries to exploit those things to the maximum extent. Mm, mm. Mm, okay. Just out of interest, I mean, I always love this. Love to ask this question. I mean, perhaps drawing on Leotard, where do you personally see the future of capitalism as heading? Well, my own view is, I mean, the short answer to the question is I just don't know, of course. <laughs> um, but I would say that I think that I think that times have changed. And this is one area where I do think that we're now in a position to look back on what Leoto was writing in the late 90s before he died and say that times have changed. So Leoto was writing... Um, at his most pessimistic point, you know, so he died in 1997. Um, a decisive point for him was the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. So he, his famous thesis of the postmodern condition, the end of meta-narratives, of which one is, is Marxism, this emerged in the late 1970s, but about 10 years later uh, with, you know, the um, collapse of communism, uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and so on. Leotard took this as a, a kind of confirmation of this thesis of the postmodern. Um, and he was very pessimistic about this. You know, he wasn't celebrating this, so contrary to some popular opinion, maybe. He became very pessimistic and he started to see that um, there was simply no alternative. As I said earlier, he said in an interview, there's no alternative to capitalism. We simply can't think of this is a viable possibility anymore. And he started to see the world system as a stable metaphysical system on a largely cybernetic model. So we have a system of feedback mechanisms where uh, the the global economy, the the global political economy would Mm self-regulate. And he saw that as a kind of indefinite future, which could only be challenged by the death of the sun in 5 billion years, you know. A few things have happened since then, I think, which uh, which mean that very quickly this this idea of a kind of uh, stable system is no longer possible. The most obvious one is probably impending environmental collapse, right? So uh, before <laughs> uh, five billion years in the future, we have this problem of uh, you know, the climate and so on. Um, so I was fortunate to see uh, Bernard Stiegler speak, not in person, but over Skype, not long before his untimely death. Um, and uh, we both gave papers on Leotard at a conference devoted to Leotard uh, in China. And uh, we both made the same point, actually, that, well, Leotard just didn't appreciate uh, environmental problems. And Stiegler said, well, it wasn't really his fault. Most people were just kind of ignoring this in the 90s or were not very aware of it. So I think this is one definite source of instability, which means we can't view the world system today in the sense that Leotard did. And I don't think it's sufficient for us to think about the inevitability of the capitalist system and the possibility of resistance. I just think we don't have time. No, we can't do this. Um, and secondly, there have been, inv- uh, pardon me, there have been economic crises since then, such as notably in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's pretty quickly this notion of a, a stable world system, you know, which was really, it seemed plausible at the time. This was the era of, um, you know, the kind of third alter- alternative in, in politics with Tony Blair and, uh, with, and Clinton and so on. And it seemed plausible. You know, I don't, don't think Leo was wrong to think this in the 90s. But I think historical circumstances have changed. And I think uh, if we look at Leotard's work and see how quickly his own ideas adapted to the times, if he was still alive, there's no way he would be saying the same things today as he was in the 90s himself. Mm-hmm. So you don't think uh, that the climate, the oncoming climate crisis is something that could possibly be, you know, hoovered up by capitalism and in some some sense that capitalism could actually survive it? I guess I'm in two minds about this. So I was um, I was really struck at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, reading a few articles suggesting uh, even you know quite quite right wing um, uh, economic commentators were saying it's the end for capitalism. Uh, it simply can't adapt to situations like pandemics, and they were saying it's not it's not a matter of prediction anymore economic policies already are changing, you know, and they have changed. Um, uh, They've become more socialist in a sense. Mm. At the same time, I mean, it's hard not to feel, given how quickly the economy's rebounded, and also the fact I read that um, on a global level, uh, the economy didn't suffer because of the pandemic. It actually grew. Um, inequalities just grew, you know, so mm. the, the certain people made a lot of money. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty cynical person. Um, so I'm, I'm inclined to look on the cynical side and think, well, maybe things aren't going to change too much. Um, but I guess my, my, my sceptical bent also disinclines me to, to be too cynical and think, well, we know what's ahead. I'm not sure that we ever do know. And the the moment we reach the point of saying we've seen it all before, you know, we know what's coming, something unexpected is going to going to emerge. Um, so I don't, as I said before, I don't think we have the luxury to be in Leotard's position and say, well, there is no alternative to capitalism. Mm. Um, I like. I like the way Deleuze says, for example, if you look at the history of philosophy, although it can appear as though there are periods where certain things are just hegemonic and nothing's changing, there's always something going on in the background that then suddenly emerges unexpectedly. Um, so I think it's useful for people to be to be inventive and just try to think of alternatives, even if even if it seems hopeless, because you never know. Wow, that's more optimistic than the heat death of the universe. So, you know, that's good. Um, is there anything about your, your, in your book or about your book that you, that's key that you, you would like to add in? I don't think so. No, sorry. Um, yeah, just thinking about it, we talked about nihilism, we talked about information, uh, we talked about art a little bit. Um, I don't know, maybe we could talk about art a little bit more, but I'm not sure if I have any any particular points to make. I'm not sure if you have any... Well, I mean, I could tie that into the previous conversation with regards to capitalism to say that, 
you know, as, as you comment in the book that cubism, futurism, etc., um, the, the, these uh, inhuman movements in a way, um, perhaps many of them have been commodified by the art world and the art world itself has become this sort of quite disgusting behemoth at times. But do you, do you possibly see that inhuman aspect of art as being a potential positive exit route out of capitalism at times? Yeah, that's a good question because I think I think in general, um, <clears throat> despite how politically pessimistically it's often seemed to be, um, he's really the opposite about art. You know, in a period where everyone was decrying the death of art, Lyotard would have none of it. Um, in that sense, he always supported the the infinite potential of art to do something new and interesting. And, and creative. And is this itself being a source of value in life um, or indexing some more mysterious source of value? Um, and the, the question of commodification is, of course, a really interesting one. Um, um, at Dundee, we have this wonderful uh, program, um, Art and Philosophy, where, where students are, uh, do art practice and they study philosophy as well. And, Quite often, these students are very interested in this question of uh, exploring what art can be in the contemporary art market. And we've already discussed how Lyotard was critical of tendencies to commodification in art. But I've, I've seen this overemphasized as well. So, for example, Roncia um, aligns Lyotard with people like Adorno and various other figures as. Uh, suggesting there's like a pure region of art which is non-commodified non or something like this. But Lyotard never believed that either. He thought that, you know, art always has been and always can be commodified. Uh, it's just a matter of degrees. And he even suggested that the pressure to produce commercial products can sometimes be a prompt to creativity, you know. So there's no sort of inside or outside or black and white for Lyotard with respect to these kinds of issues. But he was concerned with um, the degree of the pressure, I suppose. And so in that sense, yes, he was critical of artists who would just uh, pander too much to the tendencies of the art market or even in general to what audiences want. Um, and he really valorised something that I guess is, is often um, decried these days as a kind of romantic heroism or something, you know, the, the idea of the individual creative artist. He's not really big on individuality, but he does, he, is, he was big on this idea of, um, uh, well, it's hard to say with Lyotard, there are points where he sort of uh, complains about nearly every word you can imagine. It's mm. something to do with creativity, um, something to do with, with trying to do justice to what it is in art, which uh, which doesn't give in to any other demands. So there's something, for Lyotard, there's something trans-historical about the power of art, um, which he doesn't think can be stifled by commodification, not entirely stifled anyway, or by any particular political system. And I think, you know, that's, that's the area of the the greatest hope in Lyotard, the most optimistic perspective. It's this, this belief in this 
unbridled possibility of of thinking and uh, creative art and so on, despite all of the kinds of pressures um, uh, that these activities are often increasingly, it seems, subject to. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the contemporary art market recently? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned, it makes me think of, um, you mentioned the 2008 crash, the economic crash as this example of, well, maybe capitalism isn't going to go the way that Leotard thought. And I remember watching a documentary about it and there being this video footage of, yeah, Sowerby's, where the, the sort of, it's now become an infamous clip of someone bidding on a Van Gogh during times of you know economic recession and as the money's going up you realize that the bidding is happening not for the sake of the value of the art but for like the 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 courage to throw that kind of money around in a recession and eventually they sort of applaud as this painting is is purchased and i mean i think since then perhaps you know the art world has perhaps regained a little bit of authenticity authenticity but do you do you do you think it does have a foothold amidst capitalism as something which perhaps connects back to this sort of infantile, lucid state which Leotard talks about? Do you think it still has that today? Well, I'd have to preface any comments by saying that I've got a particularly skewed perspective on the art world, which is mostly <laughs> related to art students. Um, and I I don't go to art options, put it that way. So I don't know a lot <laughs> about that side of the world. But I have seen, um, I have seen the, yeah, the scene you're referring to, actually. I guess I rather simplistically just think that, yes, there is this art market that just has nothing to do with art, in fact. Mm. You know, art, art just gets used as a commodity, as an empty signifier of value, and it can be used for that. Sim- I think because the people who are uh, using it as a, uh, item of exchange don't understand it, you know, because, um, you know, I've seen documentaries where art collectors just openly admit they don't understand anything about art and they don't even care about the art. It's, they just know that it has some economic value. If people want to use it like that, that's fine, I guess. Um, I hope that creative people can exploit that to the, <laughs> to the greatest extent possible, but um, I don't think it has any philosophical value. And I think that, uh, I guess I think the world should be kept separate to some extent so that, that, uh, so that economic value doesn't too much infect um, um, actual developments in the art world. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Oh, what do you think? Um, well, I, yeah, I, my, my bachelor's was in fine art and, uh, uh, and this isn't a comment on the university, which was very good, but I sort of left, I didn't do art <laughs> after university. I mean, one, I wasn't very good at making art. Um, but also I just felt that, that, uh, they'd come to a bit of a dead end in, in, in perhaps I'd bought too much into that cliche postmodernism that the art world had sort of almost failed in recent years to create anything you know um any anything of any kind of shock um postmodernism seemed to sort of subsume everything into it and everything uh everything had become a bit too ironic for my tastes um yeah. and self-referential and and clever and um there was it was lacking sincerity which um which I think is a symptom of capitalism is that it destroys sincerity very quickly because then it's quite hard to commodify sincerity because you haven't got that sort of double, 
aspect where you can keep pumping up the number, I guess, because there's more to it. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, good. And that's that's one of the problems in Foster Wallace, who we were discussing <laughs> earlier as well. Um, the, he started to see this dead end in, in the irony of postmodern literature and turned to some kind of sincerity. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, eventually they called it, the, you know, they named, they named Foster Wallace meta-irony or post-sincerity, which is immediately entering into the same ironic. problem yeah exactly so you couldn't yeah, you, it was yeah. that problem of you can't just say like well i i wrote this line and that's exactly what it means because then people will yeah. doubt that that's what it means so it's an immediate problem but i did always you know just to continue on the foster wallace thing with his into one of his uh, video interviews where he says someone mentions his work being postmodern, and he just the retort is no 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 after modernism right like you know put a, put a pin in that balloon we're not entering that discussion of postmodernism. Yeah. I, I sort of admired him for doing that at the time because it's, but you could tell his sort of struggle to get his work out of that frame framework yeah absolutely i've got this pet i mean it's probably not the time to discuss it but i've got this pet theory that what happens to um Foster Wallace's attempt to get rid of the the meta level of his irony is it all gets thrust into the footnotes, so it kind of becomes unconscious. That's a, I mean that's a good theory. It's a good theory. I forgot I would genuinely forgotten about the end notes and all that that sort of hoo ha. Man, I'll have to mm. yeah I'll have to reattend. But I mean just a just a question to finish up I guess because because he is so. Um, uh, sort of fragmented in style. Where would you advise people to begin with Leotard? Yeah, good. Um, it's a good question. Uh, one answer would be it depends what one is interested in. So uh, there are different periods of Leotard's work or, or even different books, depending on maybe what one's interested in. So um, uh, there's his early work around, you know, libidinal economy, Marx and Freud and so on or his later work around new technologies, um, or, you know, there are books on on artists. So there's a book on Duchamp. So in that sense, you know, there would be different places depending on one's interests. But I'd say uh, the best place to start for a general taster would be uh, The Leotard Reader and Guide, um, edited by James Williams and Keith Crone. And I think this is a good place to start because it gives a combination of um, introductory essays and then uh, selections of Leotard's own texts. So you've got both uh, the primary and secondary literature uh, in the one volume. Mm. Okay, okay. And could we say that also a good place to start is Leotard and the, in, and the Inhuman Condition? Uh, you can say that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. I, I thought it was actually very accessible um consider you know oh, good. Okay. It, it, take, it tackles you. a lot of topics and it, it draws in um you know many of the key aspects of leotard's work and uh yeah I, I i thought it was great um and that that's another question i should ask is i'm assuming that we can find it on uh it's edinburgh university press so i'm assuming we can find it on their website and uh likely amazon as well but yeah uh, oh yeah 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 and you're so you're working on another book uh, yeah, I've never completed another book for Edinburgh, which uh, another book on Leotard, uh, Leotard's Philosophy of Art. So I hope that'll be out before the end of the year. Mm, okay, okay. Well, hopefully um, you'll consider coming on again to discuss that book. Cheers, James. I'd love to. Yeah, okay. Well, Ashley Woodward, thanks very much. 
Thanks very much.